Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient, ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive, glowing things about us on Twitter and Facebook or even real life, because this is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause your recording and go to Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or your preferred podcast platform and give us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing well this week, Kirk. As you can see, uh, it's sun's out, guns out. I'm wearing a sleeveless shirt right now. You look great. I went for a run, and then I did my annual uh, leaf mitigation measures, which- uh, uh, Do they involve raking or blowing? Uh, or a combination, a hybrid method. A hybrid method. So the first year we, we moved into this home, uh, we- how many trees do we have? I don't know, 20 trees? Lots. Like some ridiculous amount. And they're beautiful. And they're all deciduous. Yes. D devoted listeners will remember that we got them trimmed earlier this year, which has reduced the amount of leaves, which is a good thing. Because the first year we were here, we actually, uh, we didn't necessarily rake them. We took a leaf blower and there's actually a reverse function that will suck them up and mulch them. And we did that to all the leaves. We, 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 we mulched them. And it was like, 40 bags, like of those giant, tall, tall bags. Have you ever seen, uh, uh, and ha have you ever seen Curious George Halloween Boo Fest? I think I have, but it's been many years. There is a giant, enormous, comically enormous um, leaf sucker called the <laughs> Sucker Pater 9000 that'll, uh, that'll um, get rid of your leaves in, uh, in a minute. So just see, just, I would appreciate that because it's in sucking leaves. It is a laborious job to, <laughs> to suck them up. So uh, since then, my sophisticated method has been to just mow over them a bunch of times. <laughs> you're so telling I, yourself you're mulching it. You're, you're returning the nutrients to the ground. Exactly. Yeah. The thing is, I got my mower used. It's, it, I got a great bargain on it because a coworker of mine just wanted, she wanted a new one. She lives on a farm and does it, has a, had a ride, John Deere riding mower, which I, love your mower. I don't know how much... I don't know how much they cost, but thousands of dollars. And she sold it to me for $500 because I'm a friend and she got herself probably like a $4,000, $5,000 John Deere, like an upgrade. And because I got it as is, it doesn't have a, a mulch. Like it, it just 
it doesn't have anything in addition to the mower itself that showed up at my house. And so um, I wish I could like, you know, cause to mulch, you take off the output yeah, and just and like close keep that it, off. Yeah, yeah. Close it off. And, yeah. and, and I thought about rigging something up, but no, I just duct tape. Duct tape. <laughs> I just like, I just like mow over them a bunch of times until they're just ground up and distributed throughout the yard. And I call it good. But, but um, throughout the years I've actually blown from uh, our landscaping into the yard so that, um, that those leaves get, get uh, chopped up. So I, I did that and um, had to cut it a little bit short to come in and record the podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, um, don't, don't be. I did, I did the, uh, this year is the best our lawn has ever looked after the falling of the leaves. Um, we've got a couple of growing trees in the backyard. You know that maple that I planted like in uh, 2012, 2011? I planted a maple like 10 years okay. ago. And it, okay. it is becoming, um, it's coming into its glory. It's coming mm. into its adolescence. It's reached its growth spurt. It, it sheds a, a, a it sheds a lot of leaves suddenly. I'm also a it's, red bug It's in the back. irritable and, and all the things that adolescents are. It asks me to drop it off a block away when I take it to school. <laughs> it, won't, it won't say hi to me around friends. Ashamed of me, yeah. <laughs> That's right. It says, you don't understand. It doesn't laugh at my dad jokes anymore. All, the, all those things. It's very distressing. But in any case, um, I decided that I could no longer get by with your preferred technique, which is just mowing the, <laughs> mowing the heck out of them until they were sort of mulched in scare quotes. Um, and I actually, uh, I, I, I think I sent you a couple of pictures um, with Daphne like jumping into leaf piles. I actually raked this fall. Mm. And, uh, and, and I, I enjoy, I, I found that I enjoy raking for the same reason I enjoy mowing which is, it's the opposite of education. It's the opposite of teaching. We're in, I, we're in teaching, I pour my heart and my soul and my energies and my efforts into a batch of kids for nine months, and then they're gone. And I just can't tell, like, did I make a difference? That will, or will it be like, like waves coming back off a beach and you can't even tell they were there? Um, whereas with lawn care, you have immediate tangible results. Before it looked messy and now it looks great. So I, so I, so I, um, I raked all of it. The kids played in the leaves. Um, I removed them from the piles. Um, I, which that, that was kind of uh, rednecky what I did. I just put them all <laughs> under a big, under one of our big pine trees in the backyard, hoping that, I don't know, that, I don't know, that in the spring, the, the, the pile will suddenly be a lot lower or whatever. Um, and then I, and then I kind of did the final mow for the year. Like I said, it on a lower setting. I set it on a two gave it the old autumn buzz cut and it looks amazing now. It looks so mm. good. Yeah. Very nice. Question. Why were you doing the raking when you have three perfectly able uh, sons? Uh, answer. Um, George did uh, a bunch of raking. Um, Simon and Bryden made themselves scarce. Very <laughs> George is such a cheerful volunteer. That's that's quite a skill, Kirk. I mean, that you have to admire that. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, to make I've oneself scarce when work is is to be there. done. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but George did a George job. So like, <laughs> I needed to do it properly when it was all right, done. right. Yeah. And then I think what, the one day that George was doing it, and then Daphne like basically trashed the piles and like right. <laughs> yeah. So I have a story for you. Let's hear well, it. I don't know if you I don't know if you know this, but uh, Tuesday was kind of a big day. Um, 
Uh, we had, what was it? I forget. What did we do? Oh, yeah, we had an election. Mm. And, uh, and, um, and I voted and my wife voted. We got our, our stupid participation trophy. Actually, we didn't even get our, our, our I voted sticker. Which that's my new that's my new uh, my new joke I was telling everybody on on Tuesday like hey are you proud of your participation trophy? Uh, anyway, that's not that's not the story I meant to tell. Here's the story <laughs> I meant to tell. Um, I got I got home, and uh, um, Daphne, our four year old daughter, was like, "Daddy, Daddy, did you vote?" Yes, yes, yes. She's like, "Who'd you vote for?" And I told her, and she's like, she suddenly she's like, "Aww," and I I was surprised. I was taken aback. I didn't know that she had opinions on the election. Um, and, and I said, well, I'm sorry, Daphne, who should I have voted for? And she's like, you were supposed to vote for grandpa and grandma. <laughs> so I failed my daughter in my, uh, in my task of writing in the proper candidate. So she knew enough that there was an election, but is sufficiently young and naive to think that Grandma and Grandpa Grandpa's a, a good, a man of integrity, a man of his word. All right, Daphne. He runs a good small business. It's uh, the, the heartbeat of America right there. Mr. Bishop goes to Washington. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Christopher, should we uh, take a look at the gospel? Let's do it. This week's gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kirk, two weeks ago, we finished off chapter 22 of Matthew. Yes, we did. Last week, we jumped back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Today, we jump forward to Matthew 25, skipping over 23 and 24. Um, Matthew chapter 23, we have uh, the seven woes of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, I remember watching a video adaptation of this that was just, that I just rocked my world as a teenager. Uh, <laughs> you know, Jesus just um, calling out the scribes and Pharisees for their, for their hypocrisy. Uh, we skip over chapter 24 and the signs of the end of the age and the abomination of desolation, which I know makes Kirk really sad that we don't get to talk about the abomination of desolation. Um, we skip over Jesus uh, teaching at the I end. I bring it up at every cocktail party I go to. <laughs> I'm, I bet you do. We skip over Jesus teaching at the end of chapter 24 that the Son of Man will come with the clouds of heaven and with great power and great glory to gather his elect from the four winds. And at the end of chapter 24, Jesus teaches that nobody knows when this is going to happen, not even the angels in heaven and not even Jesus, which strangely enough, Kirk, some Christians take as a challenge to devote their lives to discern the day and the hour of Christ's return. That right. Even though the angels and Jesus don't know it, more on this later. <laughs> and uh, we begin this week with the parable of, of the, of the 10 virgins, which is at the beginning of chapter 25. Now, you may or may not know this, listener, that none of the books of the Bible were written with chapters or verses, which chapters and verses are really helpful for us to have a common reference to say John 3.16 says this, but they can be incredibly artificial and even disruptive to the text. And that is certainly the case here, where chapter 25 is a continuing of this idea that no one knows the day or the hour. This, this is a really artificial break between Jesus teaching at the end of 24 going into 25. Um, that that um, these themes, in fact, started in chapter 23. And um, 23 going forward um, is this continued, it's, it's considered the last discourse. Um, uh, it's the last, you know, it continue it. And it's, it is a continuous speech that Jesus gives. Um, and we see these uh, common themes, themes of judgment. We see judgment in the scribes and Pharisees. So uh, with this being the final discourse, it's interesting, Kirk, what Matthew provides us in terms of symmetry in the book. Um, the book, kind of the narrative in many ways of Jesus' ministry following, you know, the temptation uh, the and the baptism of Jesus, they the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five begins with blessings. This final discourse begins with woes. Hmm. So symmetry can be both like, oh, well, alike at the beginning and the end, but here we have like um, dissonance, right? Like it begins with blessings. This ends, or I'm sorry, this final discourse begins with woes. Both speeches involve a mountain on which Jesus sits to teach and with crowds and disciples being the audience. In the closing of each speech, each speech, sorry, false disciples say, Lord, Lord. 
And Jesus' response is the same. He says, I never knew you. So if you look at the end of chapter seven, you see people saying, Lord, Lord, and Jesus saying, I never knew you. Kirk, I wish I could tell you uh, more about first century Jewish wedding rituals. Anyone <laughs> who pretends to be an expert is, is not being truthful because we, there's not much we know about them. And much like other parables that are allegorical, um, and of course, I think, uh, I think of the parable of, uh, of the wedding feast where people are invited and uh, reject the invitation. And the king says, okay, I know the meal is ready. Put it under a heat lamp and we're going to go to war. <laughs> and then come back and have the meal. Uh, it, it's actually the, like those, this isn't all that realistic. So we don't need to extrapolate out the importance of, of these wedding rituals. I mean, this is kind of a weird ritual anyway, right? So we have these, these 10 virgins waiting to meet the bridegroom. Uh, and if you don't know what a bridegroom is, uh, it's a groom. We've just shortened it linguistically to groom. Uh, we don't know if it was a common thing for them to wait. So all we know is, is just kind of this narrative that we're given. Like, why were they out there waiting for hours and hours and hours? Well, like, why was he delayed? We don't know. It doesn't matter. It's the teaching behind the parable that matters, not the realism of the parable itself. Uh, be, because like this one isn't realistic either. Like first of, all, first of all, like no oil, like they didn't have 7-Elevens in those days. Like no oil vendor is going to be open at midnight, like staffing his shop, selling oil to people who might need it. And, and likewise, uh, is it really realistic for, for a wedding reception to, to keep the door closed when people come knocking? They're like, nope, sorry, you're too late. Door's closed to you. Because the meaning that Jesus is trying to convey is what's important, not the details of an actual wedding reception. So the word used here, Kirk, is virgin. I don't know why that's part of this wedding. Uh, it's interesting how the NRSV translates this word as bridesmaids. Right. The word is actually virgin, but right. I mean, it's, it's, it's... I think the two were synonymous, understood to be synonymous in... Okay, so like your bridesmaids would be virgins? Yeah. Sure. But again like mastery of first century weddings tradition isn't important. Yeah, no, no, it was, it was, they, you didn't choose them as bridesmaids because they were virgins. I, I think this was just kind of um, traditional um, uh, Jewish chastity. Um, that's my understanding. Okay. But, but a married woman couldn't be a bridesmaid. Uh, that's an interesting question. Okay. I hadn't thought about that. Okay. All right. Um, so anyway, let's, uh, very basic details. There are 10 virgins in total. And I'll use that word, even though it's, it's, you know, these are bridesmaids. Um, five were foolish. We're told at the outset and five were wise. Um, there's a job th their job is to come out and meet the bridegroom with trimmed lamps when he arrives. That's what we're told by this story. And on this particular day, for whatever reason, the groom is delayed and does not arrive until midnight. So they fall asleep. And the foolish ones don't have oil for their lamps. So they had to do a midnight oil run, which I think there's a movie called Midnight Run. Is that, is that a Burt Reynolds movie? Um, I think. <laughs> probably not as exciting as Midnight Run. Uh, midnight oil run. And when they get to the wedding feast, the door is closed to them. And they call out, Lord, Lord, open it to us. And the answer they hear is, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And what is the teaching here? My dog, my dog is very excited about, uh, about um, yeah, hey, hey, can't, can't wait. Let's, let's pause briefly for one moment while I let her out. Okay.
Yeah, our doorbell rang and she got oh, very okay. excited. I thought Iris was excited for, for the teaching here. She, she always is for that. She very loyally is in the room um, when we're recording. So <laughs> she, is, she, she appreciates our weekly, uh, our weekly chat. All right, continue. Okay, but, but like I, I was kind of working my way to a climax here. Um, <laughs> Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So this is a parable that he tells um, to kind of add some emphasis to the teaching he just gave at the end of chapter 24, that no one knows the day nor the hour. It's a parable that illustrates and reemphasizes the themes from the previous chapter. Jesus is coming again. And nobody knows the day nor the hour. Therefore, keep watch. Be vigilant. Be ready. And, and so there is allegorical meaning here. I, I think we should be reluctant to allegorize things that ought not to be allegorized. Like, not, like I think there can be an over-allegorization of Scripture. But this is clearly an allegory. Uh, the bridegroom is Jesus when Jesus returns. The virgins are the church. And this is kind of similar to the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where the church is a mixed body, where some of the virgins are ready and some aren't. Um, some in the church are going to be ready. And we see next chapter, um, I'm sorry, not the next chapter, next week, uh, continuing. Like, oftentimes when we refer to Matthew 25, that's code for um, essentially the, the ministries of mercy for which the sheep and the goats are separated. And um, again, that's, a, that's another teaching uh, along the same lines of, of the church being a mixed body, some of whom uh, are, are not interested in, in kingdom values of, of clothing the naked and feeding the, the, the hungry. Um, some of us will be ready, and some of us won't be ready, some of us in the church. And so uh, a big I mean, the, the big question to ask is what does readiness look like? What does vigilance look like? What does it mean to have enough oil and have your lamps ready and be, and to be, um, and have your lamps trimmed and ready. And, uh, so I, what, what I found compelling is, is, is the, the commentators and the scholars who, who wrote that, that readiness for Christ's return, um, is, is kingdom living that having oil is akin to serving the poor, to like love and mercy that, that um, what Jesus is teaching here isn't constant watchfulness. It isn't having our eye on the horizon wondering, you know, is today the day? Although like that, that is a beautiful thing that, um, that uh, a beautiful Advent theme that we have that we'll talk about next month of this Advent theme of, of getting up with hopeful expectation to say, Lord, is today the day? Is today the day? But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. He isn't saying like always like have your eye on the lookout for my return. Readiness is living the life of the kingdom that Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Mount. Like this, this teaching that Matthew gives us is coherent. It's it's it, it all builds. Um, each teaching builds um, on the other. Uh, and so we're going to talk about this next week when we talk about the separating of the sheep and the goats. Uh, later in this chapter, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, visiting the sick and those in prison. Here's the thing, though. It was impossible to tell these bridesmaids apart until the bridegroom returned, much like the wheat in the weeds. That, that was the whole point of that, of that uh, parable, was that the wheat and the weeds are indistinguishable until the end. And so uh, 
to help make this, uh, to help this make sense, one commentator said this, I love this quote, being a peacemaker for a day is not as demanding as being a peacemaker year after year when the hostility breaks out again and again and the bridegroom is delayed. Being merciful for an evening can be pleasant. Being merciful for a lifetime when the groom is delayed requires preparedness. So uh, again, we don't want to pit Jesus versus Paul. We don't want to uh, pit Paul versus James. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Martin Luther, Saint Martin Luther Kirk, <laughs> who, um, who in many ways had hostility towards the book of James, um, did well when he, when he said this. He said, uh, we are saved by faith alone, but never by faith that is alone, mm. right? And, and that's the best way of understanding James and, and the, the way of understanding like, no, Jesus is not saying, show me your, your works so that like you can justify yourself. Um, but what, what he is saying is, is these things that, that I've been revealing to you, uh, these, this way to live, this mercy um, to the downtrodden, um, these are the marks of preparedness. And there are, uh, in fact, there are Old Testament references to, to oil being like these good works, these, these works of mercy. One final thing, Kirk, and then I'll, I'll hand off to you. Um, and you'll like this. Huh. Okay. You'll like this. I'm excited. Okay. Like, because uh, this, uh, this is kind of about imputation. Certain things can be borrowed, but others can't. We can't borrow holiness from neighbors. So, like, it, it, it's not the ones that had the oil were jerks. You know, it's like, why didn't, why didn't those who had oil, like, were they just jerky for not sharing it? Um, they can't lend their holiness to the, to the other virgins. Mm. Um, each of us um, who are counted righteous are counted righteous on account of Christ's righteousness. His righteousness is counted as ours. Um, but our, our life of faith, um, the, our, um, our faith can't be borrowed by other people. And, and so the, 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 the faith that isn't alone, that's not something that can be borrowed by, by others in the church. Yeah, that's interesting. And that, <laughs> I, no, no, that's, that, not that, a, that is, that's not a kiss of death. That's interesting. That means <laughs> okay. I had never thought of it that way um, because you're right. Um, a, a logical question reading this might be like, whoa, um, why not, why not um, make certain that everyone has some oil, mm. but, but that would, then that particular point is, would be lost. So, mm. yeah. Um, you know what this, this parable has called to mind for me since I've had children is um, the birth of my children, which mm. is this long awaited event. Mm. And, and then there's the moment when your wife goes into labor and you're like, ah, it's here. But as you know, Christopher, it's not here yet. <laughs> right. It is not here. And it actually takes a really long time. And if your wife is like my wife, she goes into labor in the evening. And it goes late into the hours and into the morning hours. And you get tired. And if you're like me, well, you say, you're doing great, honey. I'm just going to lay down over there. <laughs> <laughs> which I have. And I think there's even a famous picture in our family of, uh, for Daphne's birth where I'm just like, um, <laughs> I, I, I'll definitely wake up like when I hear that like, it, like things are picking up, but um, I'm gonna go <laughs> lay down. 
And I went and laid down and I went to push, sleep. shouted, um, <laughs> right. wake up. And, um, and then I woke up when, um, when, when the action picked up. Uh, likewise, um, ev- all 10 of the virgins here, mm-hmm. Christopher, fall asleep. All of them. It yeah. is not the sleeping um, right. that is condemned. Right. Um, it's interesting. I think sometimes- uh, This isn't like Jesus in the garden. Right. That's right. That's not what's happening here. And I think I, I love this because of the acknowledgement that um, getting caught up in life is a thing that happens for Christians, mm. right? We mm. are little league coaches and scout masters. And we, um, in the meantime, we, uh, we, build, we build homes and families and communities while we're here. Um, so so we, aren't al- we, don't, we do not fix our eyes solely on the sky, as you just said though we're about to enter a season in Advent where we exhort to fix our eyes on the sky. Mm-hmm. But, um, but we do fall asleep, right? So it, it will happen. Falling asleep being a metaphor for um, um, while we're waiting for the bridegroom, hmm. um, we're doing things other than staring at the door, <laughs> right? Waiting for the bridegroom. Um, but rather what's exhorted is, the la- is, is having oil in the lamp. And so I love um, that you pointed out that that metaphor is um, that we have holy lives while we're waiting. And, and I, I, think that's, I think that's right. Um, I also do love the, the, the imagery of uh, even in the darkness, um, in the middle of the night, the cry will come. Mm. Um, and I'm going to include music uh, um, from Sleeper's Wake, the great mm. hymn, um, which the opening lines, <laughs> the opening line, lines are, Sleeper's Wake, uh, ruf uns die Stimme. Uh, wacket, wacket auf. Wacket auf. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Wake up, uh, sleepers. Uh, so um, a voice astounds us is the English version, Christopher, in our hymn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sleepers wake, a voice astounds us. Um, uh, a midnight cry uh, from the ramparts uh, that, that we will be woken by. It'll be good news when we're awake at midnight. So I love all of that. Um, that that hymn, Sleepers Wake, Bach et Auf, um, Box Cantata, BWV 140, um, we associate in the church now with, with Advent um, because it is anticipation of our Lord's coming. That's what this parable is, is right? The bridegroom mm-hmm. is coming. Right. We will be ready. Um, that uh, cantata that Bach wrote was for, before there was a three-year lectionary, the church had a one-year lectionary cycle. And um, this was, let me get this up so I'm just not making, making stuff up. Haberin's making stuff up. Uh, it was for the 27th Sunday after Trinity. So this would have been just before Advent, right? We are coming up on Sunday. Sunday will be the, what? The 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. So, um, this would have been just before in the traditional one year cycle. This would have been just before Advent at the end of November. And so Christopher, I went to look and see, huh, back when the church just did a one year cycle, what were these November lection, uh, lessons? And Christopher, it is really remarkable what these November lessons were. Um, so uh, on this Sunday, um, when, Prior to the one-year lecture or the three-year lectionary, when we we would have had this at the end of November every year, the parable of the ten virgins, 
um, along with, with 1 Thess Thess Thessalonians 5, um, that's be prepared for the day of the Lord. That's an apocalyptic text. Um, the Sunday before that, we would have had Matthew 25, um, uh, which is the part that, uh, that's, that's the part after this. So it actually had the final judgment. Which one? Son Parable? Of okay, if I, yeah. His glory, okay. Yeah. And all the angels with him. And then, Christopher, the Sunday before that, we would have had <laughs> Matthew 24, 25, the tribulation. Um, so we would have had these series of apocalyptic texts. And I, I, I wonder, I speculate, I think it has to do with the fact that Advent uh, uh, used to be six weeks, not, um, or seven weeks, not just, uh, not just uh, four weeks like we have now starting on December 1st. So you're saying and, their Advent wreaths had, had space for more candles? I'm saying, yes, it would have been great and glorious and fiery. And this was called St. Martin's Lent. And uh, Christopher, this is interesting. Um, Martin Luther, uh, whose birthday is uh, November 11th, his, he was named Martin because he was born on St. Martin's Day, Martin of Tours. And uh, St. Martin's Lent uh, began on your birthday, Christopher, November 12th, the day after St. Martin's Lent, which would have been a great feast day, and then a period of fasting and preparation began on November 12th. And it was, why November 12th? That's 40 days, Christopher. Mm. Lent used to be, I'm sorry, Advent, just like Lent, used to be 40 days. So then it would make sense that these lessons in November would have been sort of Advent-y lessons, these apocalyptic, yeah. look, be prepared, the Lord is coming. Um, and so it's, uh, we only get this once every three years, um, but the church used to get this every year. And, uh, and so I will include um, music from Bach's cantata, BWV 140, Alf, um, which I love and I listen to all Lent. And it's actually- an, all, all, Advent. all Advent. All Advent. But yeah. it used to be, um, it used to be sung and performed in November. Just very interesting. Mm. So, it's it's a wonderful cantata, Kirk. Mm. Wonderful um, <laughs> how Bach takes that theme and uh, and 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 works with it. What was it? Um, there was a soloist at some cathedral. You showed me on YouTube who who did that theme. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, on organ or vocally? Vocally, um, a cappella. Oh. We'll figure it out after the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So I, I also have a, a, a very uh, sweet memory of the hymn, Sleepers Wake, mm. um, because uh, the church that you and I uh, used to attend together, uh, St. Christopher's Episcopal Church in probably Warrendale, but I'll, I would yeah. say <laughs> Cranberry Township, Pennsylvania, but technically probably Warrendale. Um, we sang that the first sunday that we formed the choir i don't know uh how how long it had been since that church had a choir but uh uh father paul cooper put together a choir that was quite small and we just sang that hymn in unison as as the offertory very simple it was like our first time together yeah. um but that that kind of kicked off a very um important significant uh great memories of that that choir mm. of, of gathering together once a week to rehearse and and sing together yeah. uh, that was that was a great time and and so that we sang that the first sunday i i'm sure you remember this as well 
I, I do. I do remember yeah. that. Um, we now have gotten in the pattern of using that as an introit for one mm. of the, the Sundays of Advent instead of um, an Advent hymn. Though last year we did sing it as an Advent hymn. Um, I, I lost my nerve, Christopher. I had this scheduled as, uh, as our, our closing, our opening, clo I, I had it scheduled as a hymn. Um, and I, I changed it at the last moment um, for, for this coming week. Just I didn't feel like with um, multiple services and distancing and, and lower mm. numbers, like we had enough, uh, enough singers and enough oomph to really carry it off. Um, but, uh, uh, so we're, we're doing Jerusalem, the golden instead. Uh, mm. but, um, I will say this, that, that hymn and I'll play it and listener, you can hear it. If you've never heard it, if you do know it, hopefully it evokes, um, uh, loving memories of, of Advent for you. Um, that, that hymn is, uh, often Bach, we know it through Bach's harmonization. It existed in Germany, um, prior to Bach to a previous harmonization that now to our ears would sound very very simplistic and childish. Um, that is often shown in, in uh, music theory as perfect harmonization. Mm. Like, no rules are broken. It's actually um, technically brilliant. And because it's so brilliant, it sounds simple. Mm. As with all great works of art, the better the genius, the more hidden the genius is. It, the the mm. effort is hidden, right? Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and so it sounds effortless. Um, and yet, if you ever sit down at a keyboard to play it, um, you'll just marvel at the counterpoint. It's perfect. It's simply perfect. So, shall we move on to uh, theology? Let's do it. Let's do it. For our theology segment today, we want to talk about Christians and politics. So as Kirk mentioned, uh, this is uh, an alert, uh, if you didn't hear. We, breaking news, Kirk, on Tuesday of this past week, we had an election. And uh, elections are, by definition, reductionistic things. We reduce really complicated ideas about the inherent dignity of life and helping all people to all Americans to flourish, all people to flourish. We reduce these sophisticated ideas down to a binary choice between two candidates. So why would wait we... a minute? I, I I was told this was all or nothing. <laughs> it's either Jesus I was told or the devil, the fate right? Of the Republic was at stake. Right, or at least I, Christianity. I destroyed yeah. your momentum with my snarky comment. Continue. So why would we as Christians, why would we reduce our sophisticated ideas about human flourishing down to a two-party system with simplistic slogans like hope and change or make America great again or keep America great? Um, we recently talked about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, which is not <laughs> – I look back on this episode and, and I feel like I was 
not as articulate as they ought to have been. And, and so I'll, do, I'll try better this time. This is not Jesus advocating the separation of church and state. What he was saying is Caesar or America or whatever government. Uh, yes, the, the, the Bible says to, um, you know, Paul writes in, in two different places to respect the government because it only exists because God puts it in place. Um, and Jesus is saying, yeah, the, like there is some level of, of just general deference we give to the government, but it is a small part. And I, in the Facebook chat, uh, I saw a quote later after recording that encapsulated perfectly what, what, uh, the, what the, the approach we have to have is that, so Jesus says, you know, render unto Caesar what, what is Caesar and unto God what is God's, referring to the image on the coin. Well, we who are made in the image of God render everything to God. And so the quote it was from, was it Doris Day? Um, I don't want to say much about her, but like um, she said, once we are finished rendering unto God what is God's, there's nothing left for Caesar. Are you sure you mean Doris Day? Wasn't she like a really cute blonde actress in the 60s? <laughs> I'm sorry, Dorothy Day? Is that what I was trying to say just yes, now? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, but like Dor Dorothy Day, I think was a socialist. But anyway, yes, yes, like, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so like, I don't want to endorse like her whole work, but like, even when a socialist um, says something wise, like we ought to like, and I thought, thought it was a wise saying, um, uh, you know, once we have rendered unto God what is his, um, there's nothing left for Caesar. And, and that, that is what we as Christians need to take to the, to the, the polling place is, is, um, is that uh, it's interesting how we've had these, these political parties. Uh, it's not interesting. I'm sorry. It's a fact that political parties have, 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 have cropped up that uh, demand our allegiance. Yes. Because what they're trying to do, the, the problem though for a Christian is that what they're trying to do is at odds with what we are pressuring them to do. They are pushing us to give them our allegiance while we are trying to use biblical values to influence them. And this is the issue with becoming partisan with, with throwing in totally with one party is that we lose all influence we have on the parties to embrace godly and biblical values. And, and so I want to warn anybody uh, who uh, is convinced that, your political party is the thing that you, your allegiance um, belongs to because that's not where your allegiance lies. That God calls you to tell your political party and everything else in life to get in line. Everything is second place or, or, <laughs> or, or further back. That a hundred percent of our allegiance is to God. Um, Christians are not called to be quietistic and to, to, to distance ourselves from politics. Um, we're not called to be detached from the process because to be detached from the process is uh, in a country like ours where we have, have the, we have the amazing right to actually influence policy, um, that, that would be a silly thing to do. So um, what I wanna say today is, is to resist the impulse uh, to be reductionistic, to say that my side 
my party is right and the other party is filled with uh, fill in the blank. Uh, if, if you're a Democrat and you think all Republicans are fascists and bigots, um, I, I, I want to I want you to resist that. If you're a Republican and you think that uh, all Democrats are uh, are um, Antifa and um, people who want to usher in um, socialist utopias, uh, resist that as well. Remember, um, the, so I, I don't want to diminish voting. Voting is very important. Christians should vote. Uh, it's. Uh, I had a conversation with with a pastor uh, over text recently where he was like kind of asking essentially like like what's what's the tone we ought to take um because he said i'm a little bit tired of the whole like our you know god is our king and uh we are primarily citizens of heaven and and he says like obviously that's true it's good and biblical and foundational but he also wants to challenge people to be some to be missional during this time and so so my response to this friend was that voting for the right candidate or cause is no substitute for actually uh, blessing your friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and coworkers. And so I, I use those words very intentionally. Um, the election is a very small, uh, insignificant part of, of kingdom living. It's easy to spout slogans or get behind causes. What's hard, Kirk? It's actually hard. Love your neighbor. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. So yes, that's the so the the, the easy part is is behind us. The hard part is in front of us. So very quickly, because I know you, I, I want to hear your thoughts. Um. So I said friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, coworkers. Um. That that is part of a vision uh, of of outreach and evangelism. Um. Uh. The first two parts are frank and bless. So Frank, F-R-A-N-C, friends, relatives, acquaintances, uh, neighbors, and coworkers, that encapsulates everybody who is around us, who God is calling us to love and bless. And so as Anglicans, we especially have a, a deep and, and robust theology of blessing, but bless is actually an acronym. Um, then what do we do with these people that God has placed around us? How do we, how do we reach out to them? Do we give them a tract? Do we walk them down the Romans road? Do we present the four spiritual laws? Do we tell them they're a sinner and God has saved them by grace? Well, um, this new method of evangelism, bless, um, it's powerful and it's formative and it's actually something that you can do with your friends, neighbors, and so on. So B, begin with prayer. So what can you, listener, do? You can pray. You can begin with prayer. You can pray for your neighbors, your coworkers, etc. L, listen with care. As we try to heal after a divisive election, um, if you just do these two things, if you just blah and forget the ESS part, if you just per begin by praying for your neighbors um, and listen to them, uh, we can heal and we can do that hard work. Um, e uh, is a little, bit, a little bit hard during COVID. E is eat together. Break bread with these people around the Lord's place around us. S is to serve in love. Serve them. Um, on Saturday, I'm gonna, um, our church is gathering to rake yards for those who can't rake their own yards. We're serving them. And then S, the final S, and order is important here, is share your story. Begin with prayer, listen with care. I'm sorry, begin with prayer, listen with care, eat together, serve in love, share your story. That is so good. That is so good. Thank you, Christopher. Um, my, my thoughts on this matter are colored by my observation um, that I think a lot of American Christians 
have put too much faith, hope, um, effort, and mm. care <laughs> into political outcomes. Um, and, uh, and I wish that maybe like 40% of their effort at least could be diverted in loyalty, allegiance, and uh, volunteering in, 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 at their local church. Um, I know people who, yes, oh, right. All right. I'm sorry. I went and took care of that issue. Yeah, no, Daphne was screaming. I thought like she legitimately had lost a limb or something. No, what you heard was she was ninja fighting with George and she thought that George had said he had blown her up. <laughs> okay. And she thought, no, I'm supposed to win this battle. So George, it, it, you did not blow me up. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So they've, they've been watching Power Rangers and um, yes, mm. we're, we're, very, we're very right now into, into ninja fighting. I, I, I realized even as those words came out of my mouth that that's not how you say that. And I sound 87 <laughs> years old. We're into ninja fighting. <laughs> I sound like what Homer's that, dad. Yeah, what does that even mean? <laughs> We're into ninja fighting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Back in D-Day, I ninja fought the Nazis. All right, I'm sorry. All right, so we were in the middle of a very serious segment yes, and you were making heard. a very serious point. So let, let us continue. Yeah, no, I, I, I wish that a lot of American Christians, this is, I'm going to kind of be judgy and bring some law, um, gave as much uh, loyalty, devotion, um, and partisanship to, um, uh, to their local church, um, even the time and effort. Um, I think a lot of American Christians think they're Christian when they attend once a month or twice a month, um, and yet um, we'll spend, you know, hours on Facebook um, giving political sermons. Um, uh, certainly our, um, not, certainly not listening, but right. Our kingdom, of... our kingdom is not of this world. Um, the, the kingdoms of this world have effects on our lives in, in, in some small ways. And so, um, you know, on the margins, it, it maybe matters a little bit who's president. Um, however, we, we read in the Psalms that, um, uh, put not your trust in princes. And so that's some kind of, you know, that's in our wisdom literature. That's a, a Christian insight. Um, uh, but we read in Hebrews that we, we have no con continuing city, but we seek one to come. Um, St. Augustine, we're not the first Christians to feel like, uh, to feel the ground shifting under our feet um, in an empire, and America is an empire. Um, and we've had, a, we've had a good run as Christians as kind of a, as, as a favored religion within America. Um, I, Christians should... Have Saint Augustine's uh, "The City of God" in mind, as um, as uh, Christians had a good run um, after the Edict of Milan in what is that 318? I should know this. I think it's 318, 309, 318, something like this, where Christianity is legalized in 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 Rome. Um, uh, but then, within 150 years after that, uh, um, with uh, with with the coming of the Germanic tribes, uh, uh, the footing of Christianity begins to. Uh, Christians begin to wonder politically, is our allegiance to Rome? What happens after Rome? What can it even be like to be Christian if there is no Rome? Listen, we will be <laughs> Christians in North America at some point when there's no United States and mm. it'll be okay. <laughs> and we will be Christians even when there's no Democrat party or no Republican party and it'll be okay. So we need to kind of remember where our loyalties lie um, and sometimes um, during election cycles, I think our, our loyalties get, get maybe maybe askew. Um, 
And, and I wanna say this kind of uh, two cheers for uh, politics and Anglicanism. Uh, there's this concept um, in Christian theology called adiaphora, and that's things that are permitted. Um, and uh, I think in America- uh, Things like indifferent, things yeah, that things like, there's, there's, things liberty, there's liberty. There's liberty, those. there's liberty, that's right. Um, so I think a lot of American Christians um, feel like they have to have, so, so there's a certain brand of American Christianity that says you have to vote Republican for life issues. Mm. And I understand that and I hear that. And there's a strand of American Christianity that says you have to vote for Democrats because you cannot put people in cages and we have to care for the dispossessed and the poor and the downtrodden. And I hear that. Um, but we believe that, uh, that um, your, uh, your Christian confession um, trumps a political commitment. And so your political commitments are adiaphora. Those are things indifferent. Um, and uh, the, we have a great tradition in Anglicanism of um, being Orthodox, creedal Christians, in fact, obnoxiously um, focused on <laughs> the old creeds and the old things um, and, uh, and, and being, being uh, into Christology and Nicene formulations and things like that. And yet, um, being Christian socialists <laughs> or whatever, right? Which would make kind of uh, Orthodox Baptists or Orthodox Presbyterians wrinkle their forehead in confusion, right? Being on the one hand, uh, theologically conservative, and on the other hand, politically liberal, right? Um, so you should get to be Orthodox and politically liberal, or if you want, Orthodox and politically conservative. But if you start feeling your politics mm. make a tug on your Christianity, you're doing it wrong. And so your, uh, your, your political commitments should always submit to your theological commitments, not vice versa. And so I guess that's kind of my yeah. final exhortation, my final thought. Um, if you're feeling your, uh, your Christian commitments, um, having to make some, uh, uh, some concessions to your political commitments, maybe hold your com political commitments a little looser. And that's my final thought is um, our political commitments as Christians, we should hold fairly loosely. Christopher, what should matter more to us? <laughs> the two natures of Christ or tax policy? Two natures of Christ. Yes. <clears throat> and I, I don't want to belabor this point. I tried <laughs> to make it at, at the beginning of the segment uh, and, I'll, and I'll try to kind of put a little bit of uh, substance to it. Um, just to, to say that the, the political parties just by their very nature are at odds with, with what we are trying to do as Christians in that they are trying to build a broad coalition um, that um, may include a, a very few specific. Uh, so like the Republicans um, are able to build a giant tent um, that includes Christians because of the pro-life issue. Um, but like, if we think the, the problem is we think that the Republicans work for us when in fact it's like, the Republicans see it exactly the opposite. Right. They see it as like under them and, and as reliable, um, you know, uh, right. voters, not constituents, but just a reliable part of a voting block. And um, when we uh, align ourselves totally with one party, um, we, we kind of lose sight of the fact that parties are actually at odds with, with what we are trying to do because they have so many other things that they're trying to do beyond maybe a few kind of special interests that we have. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, two things immediately left to mind when you just said that. Uh, uh, 
uh, Christian support for uh, Republicans through the 80s and 90s, um, I think directly undermined Christianity in America in mm -hmm. that um, you had uh, enormous affluence, which brought many out of poverty through, for, through market reforms, um, and uh, enormous market growth and growth in wealth um, that made us all rabid, insatiable materialists <laughs> mm. and mm. created several godless generations. And mm. of course, on the left, uh, um, uh, the Democrat Party, um, uh, we, you and I both know um, really, really fervent, fervent liberal Christians who believe dearly in their cause. Um, and yet um, uh, there, there's, there, there's just, just, just rampant atheism in leftism. And yeah. um, I mean, atheism is kind of the it, inextricably written in the DNA of, of socialism as well. So um, yeah. if you become too loyal to uh, yeah. one or the other party, um, you're going to be you're going to be sawing off your the Christian branch that you're sitting on. Right. So. Yeah. 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 So so yeah, get involved in politics. Vote. Um, be vocal. Um, take your values with you and influence both parties for the sake of Jesus. Amen. final brief culture segment um yeah Kirk, we've, we've, yeah we've <laughs> we haven't done culture for a while because we just haven't had the time we've talked yeah. so long about about the gospel and theology but i'm excited to talk culture what are we talking about today oh my gosh um the great cultural moment that you and i had been waiting for christopher for 10 months uh disney plus has been um fun in a bunch of different ways uh but one of the most uh, enjoyable products that it produced. Um, I think for both of our families, Christopher, was The Mandalorian. And last Friday, we had season two of The Mandalorian. Um, uh, I'm sure you have uh, reasons why um, 
uh, th things that you'll say about the Mandalorian that, that you particularly enjoyed. Um, so I'll just introduce it very briefly. Um, the Mandalorian is a is a Disney um, uh, fifty minute kind of uh, serial uh, show um, that uh, that is loosely based on um, a character from the original trilogy, um, Boba Fett, who had this really cool suit and a jetpack, <laughs> and he was a bounty hunter. And uh, I don't know if George Lucas and the, the writers knew um, what kind of fascination they were creating when they created that. You're shaking your head no, probably no, not. No, no. Um, uh, but there became this enormous fascination around this bounty hunter. Um, and he, there's only a couple of scenes in the original trilogy, and uh, he dies in the Sarlacc pit, right? <laughs> um, in episode six, in The Return of the Jedi. Or, we're, or so we're led to believe. Or so we're, right? <laughs> or so we're led to believe. No, no one's ever really gone. Right. Um, but then, Especially Star Wars. <laughs> uh, but then the series uh, came around in the 2000s. Um, uh, oh, Christopher, it's escaping me. Um, what was the uh, the the animated series in the two thousands? With that, the Clone Wars, yes. Um, and then uh, after that, um, there was another animated series in which there was a Mandalorian, a character. Star Wars Rebels, yeah. Star Wars Rebels, that's right. Um, and uh, there became this this uh, this race. Um, it, it became this more built out uh, mythology around this race that they have this armor and it's it's sort of uh, very reverent and it's part of their sort of religious. That's a sort of samurai code, this military. It's a, it's a, it's code. a creed, not a yeah. not an ethnicity or whatever. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, we even understand that the armor is sort of uh, functions as currency in some ways. Um, it has a name. It has, there's an ethic behind it. Um, there are sort of rules for who you show your face to, who you don't, um, who gets to see you. You're not a Mandalorian. Um, and, this is uh, the last, way. This is the way. And last year this came out and it had, um, this shockingly slow pace to it, which was very reminiscent of the first half of the original Star Wars movie mm. that allowed you just to drink in the landscapes. It even had explicitly Western soundtrack to it, um, which is Westerns were always lurking behind the aesthetic of the original trilogy, right? And uh, America fell in love with it. It was just great. Um, and I, I don't want to spoil, uh, spoil the show at all, um, but I just want to say that season two begin with a bang. We've got some, um, got some new plot twists coming up, some new wrinkles. Um, and of course, Christopher, before I hand it over to you, I have to say that Baby Yoda was a <laughs> phenomenon, both in my household with my children and in my classroom with my students. Uh, so uh, Christopher, I'm just gonna hand it over to you um, to say that, uh, and I'll say this, um, we begin season two with we understand now the Mandalorian has been tasked with helping Baby Yoda find his people. So <laughs> we're going to search for other Jedi. Mm. So Christopher, talk to us about the Mandalorian. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to keep this a contained discussion because there's so <laughs> much to talk about. Um, you know, uh, what George Lucas did with Star Wars, with the original trilogy, is, is quite remarkable in... Um, kind of synthesizing so many different kind of strains. So he took he took you know Japanese samurai movies and he took um, westerns and he well, took explicitly with Darth Vader's helmet. It's a samurai mm -hmm. helmet, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and he, you know, a cynic would say it was it was a shameless ripoff, but but it, I mean, it was a, really it's an homage. homage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
in, in putting together these themes in, in a really compelling way that he kind of failed to pay off on past. Cause like it didn't, it didn't quite work in this expanded universe as far as like, uh, like his kind of weird Eastern mysticism. <laughs> um, and, and like, like he, you can't build a complete system out of it, but um, what you can do uh, is take those original themes that made the original trilogy compelling kind of these, these Western themes. And like, if I were more conversant in Westerns, like I could tell you the exact movies that, that uh, John Favreau is ripping off yeah. or, or paying homage to uh, homage to uh, paying homage to in, in, the Mandalorian, like there are specific movies. It's like, Oh, okay, this is this movie. This is this movie Um, in a really cool way. uh, I mean, what makes, there are a lot of things that make the original star Wars movies compelling. Some of them is, is just the landscapes. Like they're filmed in exotic locales, you know? Yeah. And what they've done, which can be expensive, incredibly expensive. So, uh, what they did, um, John Favreau has been at the cutting edge of, of motion capture technology uh, and, and essentially uh, b- both with directing um, first, uh, we, we see a progression here um, from The Jungle Book to The Lion King, which looks like it's live action, but in fact is just really sophisticated graphics to right. The Mandalorian, which... Uh, what they did is essentially uh, rather than going and spending hundreds of millions of dollars to go to these exotic locations, as you go from planet to planet, what they do is they built like this airplane hangar sized uh, uh, LED soundstage essentially. So what what they do um, rather than acting in front of a green screen or going to a location and green screen work is really painstaking because there's this thing called bleed right. where if you act in front of a green screen, the green kind of reflects onto the person. And so uh, graphics uh, workers, CGI workers have to painstakingly remove all of this mm. green bleed off of the skin yeah. and the Mandalorians, uh, you know, uh, has this really uh, reflective armor where that would be impossible. But instead what they do is they project the background uh, on these high def, to call them high def is, is insufficient. Like these amazing screens that are like 30 feet tall and are in a room that's so, so it's, it actually looks like you're on location. And Disney plus has a, has an episode or not an episode, a special where they kind of show kind of behind the scenes, how they do that. Right. I need to watch that. I, I haven't seen that, but yeah. I, I've seen just I, we, watch, we watch, okay. we watch, we watch Yeah, all and, and they, they actually have to be very careful with the actors to make sure they don't like run into the wall, you know? Right. Both for the safety of the like wall and the, the actor. Show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so so that, that to me is interesting, just in a way of, of um, as viewers, like we're going to benefit from like watching TV shows and movies that have like really cool locations without actually having to spend the money to go to those locations. And so, so it's, it's visually compelling. Like all star Wars is like, you've got these big open vistas. Uh, I I have some criticism. Um, Like part of the reason that uh, Luke was brought to the planet Tatooine was because it was this backwater that like didn't matter. And, and, and every time we return to Tatooine, um, it seems like, uh, this, like, it's, it's less of a backwater, the more, you know, so, so in the prequels, 
you know, with Anakin on on Tatooine. And then like, uh, so why would they have taken Luke to a place that like Darth Vader would have looked first, you know, to find, to find Luke. Um, but anyway, we, we're, we're back on Tatooine with familiar things mm-hmm. at the beginning of, uh, of season two. Um, familiar th- things like, uh, and again, like it tackles interesting things like um, reconciliation between different people groups. Like, like um, uh, what, what do they call, um, they, in the, the original people. trilogy, they call them the sand people, the but sand like Tuscan, Tuscans, Tuscans. Tuscans, and then some of them Tuscans are raiders. Hey, like, Christopher, they... um, how do the Tuscans speak? Their language is the best. Arr, 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 arr. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what's funny is the Mandalorian uh, Mando actually speaks. He can speak Tuscan. With... I was, Kirk, I am a huge fan of the TV show Justified. And so um, Timothy Oliphant's yes. presence was very welcome. I loved it. When I saw him on the screen as a character in episode one, that was fantastic. Um, I, I don't like the Star Wars thing where like nobody actually dies. Like in, in mm. episode one, The Phantom Menace, where we see uh, Darth Maul sliced right, in half. Sliced in and half. Fall like plunging. a thousand feet. <laughs> Thousands then, of feet. And then like, uh, I mean, George Lucas basically messed up by killing off like a cool, kind of coolish, right. kind of a cool well, character. Do you, do, you know, do you remember where and he so, was uh, And so they resurrected him. Where? Do you remember where? No. It's resur- he's re- resurrected in the Clone in Wars, Wars right? Rebels. No, Clone oh. Wars. That's right. In Clone Wars. Yeah. So they go yeah, back yeah. to that, that planet and he's like still down there in a rubbish heap. Like, but like with like. This <laughs> with it, with his legs separate. Arachnid legs. Like. <laughs> Which is just preposterous and dumb. So like, so yeah. the fact that like the, this episode had like uh, us led to believe that maybe Boba Fett survived. Yeah. Like we're told in Return of the Jedi how like this sarlacc, you know, it's it's stomach acid like eats away at you slowly over the years, over like a thousand years. Yeah, I don't <laughs> like the idea that somehow he survived that. But we we see what armor that might be his. But then there's we get a glimpse of someone that might be him, maybe. But uh, anyway, like I th- hey Christopher, I have a question for you about the sarlacc pit. <laughs> what? Why would there be an empty sarlacc pit? That's a great question. No, that was for, from the first episode. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why would there be an empty Sarlacc pit? Because something uh, ate the Sarlacc. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is really cool. Right? Well, what, did your, what, did your kids, what did your kids think of that? Christopher, the inner 12-year-old me uh, yeah. in that moment during that rhetorical <laughs> question was like, whoa, mind blown. What could There's eat something... a Sarlacc? Right. Because this whole, the whole first... 40 minutes of the return of the jedi is that like the sarlacc pit is the thing to be feared of everything in the galaxy (laughs) sarlacc pit eats everything including the jedi sail barge i just have a question for you um do you think um maybe the beauty of um reluctant but finally committed parenthood is casting an um kind of a subtle spell on us as we see this like who's a more unlikely parent than the mandalorian Mm. in season wow Wow. Um, and yet he becomes, despite himself and his loner mentality and the loner ethos of the Mandalorian, he becomes the devoted, committed parent, the adopted par- adoptive parent of baby Yoda. And he's going to see this thing through. And there's yeah. like a rugged yeah. beauty to this that has just wo- cast a spell over all of us. What do you yeah, think? that's good. That's good. <laughs> well, and, and even just a reluctant, uh, you know, 
uh, movie trope is, you know, the, the reluctant hero, the guy who doesn't want to get entangled, you know, locally. And, but in, in season one, we see him do that yep. and fight for, the, for the, the, the locals against the people who have the, um, the ATST. ATST. I'm kind of proud of myself for knowing what that's called. I heard some people really dislike that episode. Yeah. And I just straight up was a fanboy over all of that. Like I got to see it ATST again and like, like villagers taking it down. Uh, I think it was critiqued for being just um, the cashing in on the battle of Endor all over again, which is stupid in the first place, but I thought it was fun. And I, I, I liked the first season a lot. Every time we have soup, of course, we all (laughs) say to each other, want some soup. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah well and, and you have funny, to yeah. now right i think it would be easy to to mess up the everything with baby yoda and yet like they they've done it like baby yoda is is we get the the, the right amount where we want more baby yoda's adorable um both with like on that planet that we we're just referencing with the atst where mm. where like he's about to eat a frog and then the kids are like oh like and he spits <laughs> yeah. out the frog um and so season, season one's great um but then like we see mando um kind of reluctantly get involved here in, in the, the opening yeah. of season two so we see a character change and mm-hmm. like a guy who was just a hired gun literally right you know, like literally a um a mercenary who who's like okay i'm actually gonna gonna do something good here on tatooine and help um the the, the uh I, so i i think it's dumb that they went away from sand people because uh and and embraced that's that's the that's, that's a different conversation but <laughs> I, i'm forgetting tuscan so tuscan to, to, to help like the tuscans and and kind of these people in this se- settlement that was decimated by this like underground dragon right. like come together um like it's a really good episode and it really so good. it wasn't just like based on stunning visuals although it had stunning visuals um it wasn't just you know it, it it combined a lot of elements for a really compelling thing and, and set the table for what should be another good season yeah and um some there's a great fanboy moment and i don't know if you caught it or if you grinned ear to ear like i did but we got to see that missile on the back of Boba Fett's armor, actually what it can do and how yeah. it works. I've always wondered my whole life, like, how does that work? Like, what? What's he I assume, for? What I assume it was part of the jetpack, but yeah, I didn't, like, a missile yeah, that can we, fire like, from The him. moment that he used that, I was like, whoa, that is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I was, I was, I'm all there for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in, uh, Kirk, you and I probably don't agree a hundred percent on Star Wars movies, um, <laughs> uh, but it, I don't think Disney's going to make a movie for a while now. Uh, so, th- so they they had planned to do these Star Wars stories, but because of Solo's poor performance at the box office, uh, and uh, honestly, the 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 sequel trilogy, yeah. um, Episode Seven, Eight, and Nine, did not end the way that they wanted, or at least financially the way that they wanted to and the pandemic like uh it's it's interesting that just as star, star wars is taking a break from from making films uh, and so like brief opinion for me is that like solo and rogue one were very good mm-hmm. um yeah. and then this the sequel trilogy was mixed episode um episode seven was was compelling and, and good and fun like they, they 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 found the they remembered that star wars movies were supposed to be fun um, after making the you know the terrible yeah, prequels, yeah, yeah. Um, and then eight and nine were really 
mixed and and almost eight, eight almost bad. Dia- we we should do a special episode on in sure. eight. Eight was diabolically subversive. But what they've dis- what they've discovered is that they can. Um, now they did spend a lot of money for this. <clears throat> it's not like they're the Mandalorian's cheap to make. But what I'm saying is they don't have to just do right. animation or or feature films. Like they can tell interesting stories and fun stories in the Star Wars universe. Um, yeah. And in, I would in, say I would say in a serial format. Yeah. They accidentally created their most compelling. So much was yes. invested yeah. in Ray, and I'm not a, I'm not anti Ray. But I think they accidentally committed, created their most compelling heroine um, in, uh, in Star Wars Rebels, uh, in, uh, not Star Wars Rebels, in the Clone Wars. And, then, and uh, now I'm going to um, falter Forget her name? point in not remembering her oh. name. <laughs> the, uh, the Jedi, the Twi- the, not the Twi'lek. Oh. And, I, and I'm not going to help is, you because I, ca- I can't remember her name either. You know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's. And it's I mean, it's she good. becomes in the end the, the the great hero of the the great sacrificial hero of the Clone Wars, um, and even Star Wars Rebels. Um, she uh, she comes back. She's Anakin's um, oh Padawan, gosh. and yeah, we should and, wrap this up. Yeah. <laughs> we, anyway, we, yeah, we you're, can, you're right though. You're right though. She's time. you're right though. She's great. She's a great hero. Well, yeah, um, and so what I'm saying, I'm just agreeing with you in that. Um, I think accidentally they stumbled into having quality TV in the last 15 years, even when they're struggling to, to have, have a like, financially viable yeah, big movie. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. Shall we end in prayer? Let's do it. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people And in our time, grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness, through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night for the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week, Kirk. Next week, Christopher.